how does the Google algorithm work anyhow? Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. First off, I want to thank those of you who filled out the survey. Lots of great feedback and ideas. And for those of you who requested a Got Science sticker, they are in the mail. There's still time to fill out the survey. Just go to gotsciencepodcast.org. So today we're talking about algorithms, specifically search algorithms and bias. And Katie Love is back with This Week in Science History, so stick around after the interview for that. Let's say you're in need of a very cool and informative science-themed podcast to listen to. You might ask your friends. You might check your favorite science-based advocacy organization's website to find out if we... I mean, they have a podcast, but more likely you'd Google something like podcasts about science or a similar search term and wait to see what the algorithm comes up with for you. Search algorithms are math formulas that take your query as input and attempt to match the information you've provided with the information it has access to. And judging simply from the fact that this very podcast is not the first result that pops up in your search for podcasts about science, they're not infallible. They're not even unbiased. While your search returns dozens of hits, pages upon pages of results, there's a lot of math involved in what the top results might be and what gets pushed further down. And that math is not done by some impartial calculator in Google headquarters. It's done by humans with human ulterior motives, human biases, and human incentives. Bias in technology, such as search engines and artificial intelligence, is having a bit of a moment right now as people finally catch on that it's a problem. But our guest today has been ahead of the curve for years, warning us that certain people are being technologically redlined and explaining how this affects us offline. Dr. Sophia Noble is the author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. She's also an associate professor of information studies and African-American studies at UCLA and a visiting faculty member with the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communication. Professor Noble joined us to talk about what advertising has to do with algorithms, how libraries and universities can be the last frontiers of impartiality in research, and why Google will always show you YouTube videos before Vimeo. We're glad the algorithm led you here. Stay tuned. Sophia, thank you for joining me on the Got Science podcast. Happy to be here. You've written a book called Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. So how can an algorithm, a piece of computer code, reinforce racism? Well, one of the things people fail to remember is that algorithms represent expressions of values. You know, math is a language. We call it a language because it's subjective. There are many ways that we can come to an answer, and there are equally many ways that we can determine the output that a search engine might generate for us. And those are often predicated upon, in the kind of commercial search space, uh, advertising. 
advertising is the primary goal and that is uh, what's optimized for. We want advertising to be the most visible more than maybe other forms of knowledge or science. And so it's important that people understand that algorithms are optimized around certain values and those values are not always apparent to us. And that's what I really try to do in this book is to help us understand in the commercial search engine space that our reliance upon these advertising uh, driven algorithms are really uh, a set of values that are complicated and have a whole host of consequences for us. So I think most people consider Google to be the best search engine to serve up legitimate information. Why are we so trusting? Well, a lot of us have been on the internet since before search engines, right? And we remember what it was like going through complex decision trees and going into chat rooms and looking for experts to help us answer certain kinds of questions. People are also uh, remember the early days before libraries had digital databases and we went through library card catalogs to find uh, knowledge or information. And so those were time consuming intensive kinds of other search kind of uh, strategies that we used. And then Google uh, and, you know, other search engines that even predated, I remember Lycos and AltaVista and even Yahoo for a long time played a really important role in our lives. To some degree, they also, ha- you know, used this like decision tree type of expertise that was uh, part of their platform. But Google came along um, with a different kind of model, which was this kind of blank white screen with a simple box in the middle and, you know, re-socialized us to think that finding information was just clean and easy. You could just uh, trust that this kind of AI or algorithm would do all the thinking for you or do all the labor for you. And we've now got a whole generation of people who are quite acculturated to the idea that Knowledge can be accessed in 0.03 seconds, and that a Google search engine is going to vet it and find the most credible thing for you, when that may or may not, in fact, be the truth. Talk to me a little bit about technological redlining. You use that term in the book. Can you explain it? Sure. So we previously have had other forms of redlining. And redlining is really the process of kind of using a formula or a set of parameters to legally discriminate, quite frankly, against people in our society. So for example, insurance industries for a long time used zip codes as part of the formula for determining who would get a mortgage or how lending would happen. And it would always kind of coincide that Uh, Zip codes where there was racial residential segregation meant that if you were a person of color and you lived in that zip code, you probably were not going to get a loan. What we have now is that process almost like on steroids, where in the digital space, a whole lot of information might be collected about you far beyond your zip code, but maybe demographic information about you, maybe your history of search, things that you've posted on the internet, all kinds of disparate bits of information can be collected. And uh, and your data profile now is something that you may not even know 
what it is. You certainly can't see it, but decisions about your ability to have access to kind of goods and services or resources in our society are increasingly dependent upon that data profile. And that's what I think of as kind of this digital or technological type of redlining, which is foreclosing opportunities to people based on these data profiles. How do search engines work? I mean, I know the Google algorithm is top secret, and um, but we do have some information about how it works because we can optimize our web content. Well, what we can discern is that there's a major driver in the kind of content that we see, especially on the first page, which I have to say, I'm mostly interested in my work on what shows up on the first page because the majority of people who use commercial search engines don't go past the first page. So that's the most important real estate, so to speak, um, in search. What we know is that, for example, Google has a program called AdWords where people can participate in a live auction 24 by 7, where they can optimize their content or certain keywords and pay a premium to have their content live in association with those keywords. JCPenney, for example, was busted a few years ago because they had optimized the word dresses. And anytime you did a search on the word dresses, you always got JCPenney as, you know, .com as the uh, first hit. So they were willing to pay right, to make sure that they were always visible in relationship to those to that content, those keywords. And one of the things that I try to show in the book is that certain people, communities, and ideas often get optimized by big industries that have a lot of resources, far more than the communities that are being misrepresented by those industries. Um, for example, for many years, if you did searches on the word, the keywords black girls or Latina girls or Asian girls, I mean, these are, you know, um, people in our society who are generally vulnerable, they're children or teenagers, they don't have a lot of money. Well, those identities became synonymous for many years with porn and the porn industry. Because as you know, the porn industry has more money than just about any other industry. So this is kind of this phenomenon. Now, you didn't have to add the words porn or sex. Those identities just became synonymous because the industry was able to optimize around those keywords. And those are the kinds of things. There are many, many, many examples that I give in the book to kind of demonstrate how optimization and co-optation of certain ideas and certain identities has, you know, I think a really negative, um, broader impact on those people and certainly on our broad understandings of who those people might be. Of course, this is not disconnected from other forms of media where girls of color are hypersexualized and the kind of racist and sexist narratives and tropes around that. And I think you mentioned that somehow pressure was put on Google and things changed a little bit. Yes, for sure, Google has responded to the criticisms. Um, in about uh, the fall of 2012 was when I first noticed that they had changed the algorithm after years of having the sexually explicit um, content. And one of the things that I think this tells us is that we know that large digital media platforms are responsive and they do quietly tweak their algorithms and they do make changes. Um, certainly Black Girls Code comes up now first and has for, uh, for a couple of years and that is uh, of course in no small part related 
related to the fact that Google has made a tremendous financial investment in Black Girls Code, all the way to the fact of moving um, them into their, you know, offices in New York, right? And so this is where other scholars, like people like um, Helen Niesenbaum and Lucas Entrona, have written about Google's bias towards its own properties or its own investments. And we know, for example, that it's always likely to serve up its own properties or its own investments. Uh, if you're looking for a video, you're going you're going to always get YouTube before you get Vimeo or some other competitor, right? So that effect, I think, is what's happened with respect to Black girls. Is they've certainly responded to the criticism, um, which is positive. And you know, we need to do a lot more around Latina and um, Asian girls, but also there have been certain kinds of um, other pressures. Certainly, in the case of the way that uh, certain kinds of racist red herrings have been served uh, up into the search results, whether it's anti-Semitism that gets served up when you're looking for on the keywords Jews, and uh, they've you know Google's faced a lot of criticism, and now you know for many years it's been putting up a disclaimer, you know recognizing that white nationalists have also played a significant role in um, propagating disinformation, anti-Semitism, and hate speech in their platform, too. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. And a reminder, it's last call for filling out our feedback survey and getting a Got Science podcast sticker. Now let's get back to our interview. So I hear this question a lot. How do you respond when somebody says, it's not the algorithm, it's come up, it comes up because it's what people are searching on. It's the most searched term. That really is the way the majority of people in the public, I think, that I encounter around these conversations uh, think. They think that the, that search is just a direct mapping of what the majority think. And again, I think this is because they don't think of commercial search engines as advertising platforms. They think of them as information retrieval platforms or as fact checkers. And they're not that in a lot of ways, although they also can be used for that depending on the kinds of facts you want to check. For example, if you want to know where the closest coffee shop is, you're probably going to get a list of the closest Starbucks because Starbucks is a large corporate advertiser in Google search. You might not get the mom and pop shop that's just, you know, around the corner from it because they might not be a large advertiser, right? So yes, Starbucks is popular, but there are also other implications about what does it mean to only serve up and make visible the most well-heeled or the most moneyed companies and ideas. And this is where, again, when you talk about ideas and people and communities who are in the minority or who are not well capitalized, those voices, those ideas, those forms of knowledge often are obscured. Uh, Maybe they're on page, you know, 10,530. No one's going to that page. So even if they're on page three, you're probably not going to go We're going to miss it. Right. (laughs) So I think this is, again, um, part of the challenge is this misnomer about what these search engines are 
um, how they work and what the implications of them will be. And I've, I'm particularly concerned about that in, in, the, in the case of like disinformation or knowledge or other kinds of um, evidence that we, you know, that scholars and scientists are really interested in because we study society and, and all kinds of natural phenomena as a way to be a benefit to, the, to all of us, to the public. How did you first get interested in this field? Well, you know, I spent my first uh, career in advertising and marketing for big Fortune 500 companies. So you know what's what I know this what's is going about. on. I mean, I have a lived experience and expertise, a professional expertise, in um, influencing consumer behavior and making certain kinds of uh, content visible, specifically advertising and public relations messaging. So that was my first career for many years. And then I went to graduate school. I, you know, I joke with my students, um, you know, to atone for my sins of being in advertising, let's say. But I, uh, when I got to graduate school, I went to the information school at the library. Um, at that time, it was called the Graduate School of Library and Information Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And this was during the height of the Google book digitization project, where everyone was excited about Google somehow making all the world's knowledge free and accessible by digitizing all of it, which, of course, many academic libraries stepped back from that project. And, of course, many copyright lawsuits came forward. But I was so uh, surprised that so many people were talking about Google like it was the new public library. And I had just left the advertising industry where we were trying to figure out how to game Google to make our clients more visible. So this was just a, a you know, on the face of it contradiction that I didn't understand and I felt like I needed to have a way to talk about. And it was there, uh, you know, through kind of a series of conversations and my own interests in seeing how people were represented that, um, the, the example of the pornification of girls of color became a, kind of like a, a symbolic of a way of talking about this phenomena of money and influence over our information landscape. And, and that's really kind of how I came to this work. And it's happening more and more. We're not going to stop digitizing things. Libraries, I hope public libraries survive, but... Me too. Who knows? But it's that sense of there, there's no one there's no one at the front desk when you go to Google. I'm sure a lot of people can discern what's there and maybe pick up some of the information that's that's not. Uh, I guess it's it's not vetted. It's no one is no one is. Well, no one's doing the, that kind of curatorial work that maybe a reference librarian or a cataloger is doing in a library. Certainly. One of the things that I often like to do with my students is I, because some of them have not grown up in public libraries like I grew up. I mean, I'm from the 70s, so that's what we did is we lived in the library in the weekend, on the weekends and after school. And um, so a lot of students are not uh, socialized to the value of public libraries in the way that other generations have been. Um, many of my students say that they could never have gotten through college without using Google to help them write every single one of their papers or to figure anything out. And so I'll often uh, have give them an assignment where they go to the library 
where they've done searches online and see, you know, to see what they they might get on a, something they care about, a subject they care about. And then I send them to the library, and I don't just have them stop at the library database and go going through kind of doing those searches for that information there, which of course opens up a whole different world of scholarly information and science that's really valuable and a completely different orientation, mostly fact-based. Um, and then I actually have them go to the stacks some of whom don't even know what the stacks are until they get to these you know, huge rows of books. And I say, okay, look for that book, but look for everything around it. Where is it in the library? What are the books that are around it? What does that tell you about the context of that specific book that you might be going to look for? And all of a sudden, they realize really new and interesting things like... You know, it was really interesting to me when I was searching for something about LGBTQ communities and I saw a book that looked interesting to me in the library database and then I went to the stacks and I saw that all of these books that was, I was interested in were being kind of classified or cataloged around sexual deviance and other kinds of criminality. And that was really concerning to me. And it, it also helps them understand how knowledge is made and how knowledge is organized and who has power to define the landscape of legitimacy. And these are things scholars are also still trying to work on and work through. So they get a bigger sense of kind of what's at stake around ideas and information. And to me, the library is such a powerful and important cultural institution. There are national treasures in this country and around the world, and we need to protect them because they help us think differently about um, information versus knowledge. I love that assignment. I hope you keep doing that assignment forever. That's great. Thanks. So how would you go about creating a better, sort of more credible search algorithm? Are there things that can be done? I'm uh, not really interested in a technical solution. I don't think, I mean, I, the people will always make, you know, something to, digital and technical and algorithmic that they think is slightly better than the last thing that we had. Some of these questions about disinformation, knowledge, um, public education, the accessibility of that, and it's important, it's critically important role in democracy are values questions that get exercised at the polls in midterm and, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, presidential electoral years. Um, these are values that we're going to have to make some hard decisions around in terms of what does it mean to have a well-educated public? What happens when we have an increasingly um, less literate public, right, or illiterate public that, in my opinion, is wholly reliant upon a search engine instead of reading books and writing long-form analysis and being able to read investigative news and do the sense making of that and you know I work in a university which to me is the antithesis of a search engine because in a university we have many disciplines we might look at let's say this microphone here that's between us if you looked at this microphone from an engineering point of view you might be thinking about the components and all of the ways that it needs to be optimized for the best quality sound if you looked at the same object in art and design you may say well you know the base of this isn't very strong you know it, it could really tip over pretty easily maybe we would think about this microphone in different terms if you're in my field you might think about well what's going to happen to this microphone 
these electronics when uh, we're done with them and they get loaded up on a barge and they become e-waste and they make a toxic, cancerous city of of electronic waste and trash. What's the lifespan of this? And, uh, you know, is it being planned for obsolescence already or is it going to last us 100 years? Those are the kinds of things, right? And maybe what what is the person who's going to do the interview be talking about and thinking about. That's right. That's right. How are you going to represent me and my ideas as I speak into this microphone, right? So the university or school's education is about many points of view that sometimes are contesting and are right pushed up against each other that give us a fuller picture and way of thinking about something. A search engine is the antithesis of that. It actually gives us a ranking. We think it's vetted. We think the first thing that we get is the most valid and the most um, credible, which it likely probably isn't. And it doesn't lead us to more complex, robust ways of thinking. And to me, you know, let's not do away with the universities. And you know, I tell you, we're in a moment where we see a massive defunding of public education, massive defunding of higher education, and a lot of excitement about the internet. And I think we need to put those things in. Um, with each other and say what's lost when we um, when we don't have time and make time for um, deeper inquiries. Sophia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really uh, I really appreciate it. It's time for a short segment we call This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This week in science history, we're going back to March 10th, 1867, the birth date of Lillian Wald. At the Union of Concerned Scientists, we believe that improved understanding, access, and inclusion can build trusted and genuine partnerships between scientists and their local communities. Lillian Wald was a standout example of those underlying principles. Wald was trained as a nurse, first at the New York Hospital Training School and later at the Women's Medical College in New York City. In 1893, she was in the Lower East Side teaching immigrant women a class on home nursing and hygiene when one day, a little girl approached her to ask if Wald would come see to her sick mother. Wald described making her way to the sick room and what she found there as, quote, a baptism of fire. Deserted were the laboratory and academic work of college. I never returned to them. I rejoiced that I had a training in the care of the sick that in itself would give me an organic relationship to the neighborhood in which this awakening had come. From those events, Wald co-founded the Visiting Nurses Service and went on to found the Henry Street Settlement, which to this day provides social service, arts, and healthcare programs to more than 50,000 New Yorkers. And her interests weren't limited to public health and nursing, but included issues around labor, immigration, civil, and women's rights. As evidenced in her help instituting the NAACP, the U.S. Children's Bureau, and the National Women's Trade Union League, and more. According to the Henry Street Settlements literature, Wald encouraged people to, quote, act on their own responsibility to all of humanity. Wald is credited for coining the title public health nurse for nurses who worked outside hospitals in poor and middle-class communities. She claimed she chose the term to place emphasis on, quote, the community value of the nurse. At UCS, we've expanded on that idea by fostering scientist community partnerships. These collaborations can help level the playing field for communities that are being shut out of important policy discussions, in part because they lack access to scientific information or the ability to evaluate and interpret technical findings. 
And the communities that have the least access to scientific and technical expertise are often those that most directly bear the burden of environmental and health hazards. Visit ucsusa.org slash scientists and communities to see examples of successful partnerships and tools and resources to make community scientist partnerships more effective. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Sophia Noble. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.